volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Hello and welcome to season two of Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership. I am Sal Sylvester, your host and founder and CEO of 512 Solutions and executive coaching and leadership development firm based here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm also the founder of Coach Metrics, a cloud-based tool we developed to measure behavioral change in coaching and leadership development. Thanks for joining me today to talk about the future of leadership. Last night at about 1.30 a.m., I could hear my three-year-old Max crying, Mommy, me need you. Mommy, me need you. Since my wife took the brunt of other midnight kid interruptions earlier in the week, I got up as quickly as I could to see what was up. And when I arrived at the foot of Max's bed, I crouched down and, and said, hey, buddy, what's going on? What do you need help with? With his eyes still closed, he said, mm, me miss Grammy and Grampy. All right, Max, go back to sleep. I chuckled at the moment because it was so damn cute, to be honest with you, but then I couldn't get back to sleep. And after hours of tossing and turning, I found myself wide awake and making coffee at a little bit after four o'clock a.m. Unfortunately, a few hours later, I also found myself irritated and short in my conversations with both my family and coworkers. It's not uncommon for us as human beings and as leaders to go into autopilot mode where we move through the day without much intention, where we might snap at a coworker or maybe the opposite, withdraw from an important conversation. And as our world grows in complexity and the pace of change increases, more and more it will be incumbent upon leaders to be mindful, to be fully aware of how they feel internally, whether it's due to a child who has you up in the middle of the night or frustration that you might have with a coworker, so that you can show up in life and in leadership externally with more intention and more purpose. To be aware of it, to recognize the patterns and habits of behavior that might be showing up, and then to create some space in between the event or the stimulus and then how you respond so that you have a productive instead of destructive outcome. In this episode, we're going to explore how leaders can get personally aligned through both a mindfulness practice and through a mastermind practice. And we have an expert in this space to share some amazing insight with us. My guest today is Akeem Nowak. Akeem is a business thinker, a TEDx speaker, a C-suite coach, and mastermind convener. Akeem is the author of three books, Power Speaking, Infectious, and The Moment, A Practical Guide to Creating a Mindful Life in a Distracted World. I love that name. Akeem helps C-suite leaders in Fortune 500 companies around the world to show up with 
relaxed authority, and established vibrant personal connections. His invitation-only masterminds are transformational leadership incubators for executives from widely diverse global enterprises like Sanofi, Owens Corning, NXP, Lanza, and Dover Corporation. Akeem has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, USA Today, the Miami Herald, NPR, NBC, you name it. So we're going to go to the interview right now with Akeem, and you might be interested to hear about some of the research he cites about loneliness at the top and how Salesforce.com brings mindfulness practices into their business. Hello, Akeem. How are you? I'm well. Hello, Sal. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. As you know, season two for us is really all about alignment. And when I think about alignment, I don't just think about strategy. I also think about health of an organization and bringing more humanity into the workplace. And so as we get into our conversation today, we're going to talk about mindfulness and masterminding and really more of the personal development aspects of alignment. Before we get into that, though, I want to see if we can create a broader context here. And I love to ask my guests what they're noticing in the workplace, trends, what's changing maybe at work or in our society, in our world as a whole. What are you noticing or seeing as you work with executives and companies and individuals across the globe? I'm thinking of conversations that I had actually just this week with some people I support in in really big, well-known pharma companies. And if I can relate this to the work alignment, what comes to mind is don't ask me personally to align around bureaucratic nonsense. Don't ask me to align around process that is overly complicated make life simple. In in a complex world, we're yearning for simplicity and we're yearning for companies that have clear process, but process is simple and not unduly cumbersome. I think the level of frustration I see around in companies where basically we don't trust people to make decisions. So the layers of process around, I don't trust you. So let's put yeah. some process around it. So I would say we yearn for more simplicity. And I'm really paying attention to structures that honor people's ability to be responsible for what they do. So mm-hmm. more self-management, holacracy, more smaller entrepreneurial bubbles rather than this mega machines where everything has to be approved by 10 people. So with this yearning for that simplicity, and this is a major change in mindset in many organizations, what does that mean for leaders? How do they have to think differently in order to create that type of environment where there is more self-management, there is more trust for people to make decisions and to align themselves? I feel like what I'm saying is a cliche now, but I see all the time how hard it is to actually live that. So the answer would be, if you're at a certain level and you get to hire a bunch of people that help you do your job, hire the most amazing people possible. If you need to train them, train them to a standard 
that you uphold and then let them fly. And then the hardest thing is to know, let them fly, doesn't mean ignore them. Like how often do we have touch points? What are helpful touch points? It's the classic stuff about when I give you more autonomy and you have a deeper purpose, you're going to do much better work. It's not new, but I, our job is to continuously have the courage to live that and create situations where that is possible. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I was out last night with a, a neighbor. He's in sales for a, a large global tech company and likes his job, but doesn't find much meaning in it. He makes very good money. He's successful in his own right. But the topic of conversation flew to what's the legacy I'm going to leave? Like, is this what I really want to be doing? Is this the impact that I want to be making? Well, I know you and I recently spent some time talking about flow and creating experiences of flow where we're deeply immersed in work, where we almost lose track of time. And, And one of the traits of people who are able to do that, one of five traits identified by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi is the ability to be intrinsically motivated. Mm. So I, I would, you know, I would ask this person you spoke with is how strong is your intrinsic motivation? There may be factors that are killing that every single day. And I understand yeah. that if the forces that destroy your intrinsic motivation are too strong, this is where I'm pretty old school is just go somewhere else. You know, uh, (laughs) I empathize because we all have to make a living, but nobody's forcing us to work anywhere. If we're good at what we're doing, we can go somewhere else. But then look at what the playground is somewhere else or create an environment where the playground is one where everybody's intrinsic motivation is honored. But we've hired the right people where their intrinsic motivation actually matters and is aligned with the mission and purpose you have for the enterprise. You mentioned the word flow. I did recently have a very unique experience with you and your team at at a retreat called Flow Forward. We'll talk maybe more about that later, but tell us what that is. So as we think about being the architects of, of the world that we want, of the work that we want, as we enter and start off this new year, how do we create more flow within our personal and professional life? Flow is the title of a rightfully classic book by Mihalyi Csikszentmihalyi, who is a well-known positive psychologist. It's called Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience. And I love the word optimal experience. And I want to say right away is we're not going to have optimal experiences all the time. Sometimes we're going to do stuff that we don't love doing. But when we are in states of flow, or optimal experiences, we're fully, deeply engaged in what we're doing. So my invitation to anybody who is a leader who leads teams, understand how flow happens and then create an environment where more of those experiences are possible. And, and one thing I learned from the master, Csikszentmihalyi, is that I used to think flow happens. I live in South Florida, so this is a Florida example. If I lie on the beach, close my eyes and just soak in the sun. And the truth is, I might enjoy that for 10 minutes and I'm bored out of my mind. <laughs> right. So what Chikchen Mihaly says, and I, I love to relate to the workplace, is flow happens when our skill level is met with the right level of challenge. Yeah. If the challenge is too hard, I get frustrated. If the challenge isn't strong enough, I get bored. But with the right level of challenge, 
that lifts my skill level, I have a chance to immerse deeply into something. So the more we create environments where that's possible, the more flow will happen. And the beauty of, you know how many people are, are sort of panicked about the arrival of AI? But right. the beauty I see in, in, in more automation is that tasks that don't inherently lend themselves to flow experiences, we can increasingly automatize. So the tasks that require a higher level of cognitive and emotional application where mm-hmm. flow happens, we can own more richly and deeply. Thanks for that overview. And it is a really nice model. I think it's a great leadership model for leaders to be thinking about that balance between boredom and anxiety and what's the environment they're creating for their people and what are they doing for themselves to find that flow channel, not being bored and also not being overwhelmed and and anxious in, in the work that they're doing. As I think about flow and as I think about some of the trends that you and I just talked about in the workplace, but even the, the pace of change and the increasing complexity, I can't help to, but to think that mindfulness will become a very important practice for leaders of the future. And I think there's a very strong correlation between highly successful leaders who also have some sort of mindfulness practice. What's your take? Well, I agree with everything you said. Mindfulness at the simplest level just means I'm able to be fully present in the moment, but at the same time be the observer of the moment, which means when I'm behaving like a jerk, I notice that I'm behaving like a jerk and I can modify the moment rather than having a regret three days later because somebody complained about me. That that high degree and level of self-awareness, I have found in... It was interesting. I, I just one of my sources that I read religiously is is the corner office column in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And David Gellies is the author. It's out every two weeks, and he interviewed in August um, Vasna Ramsihan, who is the forty one year old CEO of Novartis. So he's like a young rock star. He's like the in my mind the corporate rock star of the future. He has a legacy company. He is of Indian of Indian roots grew up in the country. He's a multicultural global CEO. And he listens to mindfulness apps. He meditates every morning. He has an executive coach. And the one thing I love about him, his his practices are fairly routine practices for anybody who wants peak performance. But the additional thing that Vas does, which I love, he says, in the morning, I set an intention for how I want the day to go, which is a powerful mindfulness practice. And intention isn't just about, gee, this is the outcome I want from the meeting. The intention is also about the quality of experience I want to create with folks. And that's really powerful. And if I approach my day with a conscious intention about what I wish to create, research shows that I'm more likely to create that experience, even when I have no control over other human beings which mm. I sadly don't have. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, we, we, we can't control anything but our own choices that we make. And I think what I hear you saying is that mindfulness really brings that awareness to the present moment. It helps us understand maybe some of our habitual patterns and patterns of thinking better so that as we become more aware internally, we can then lead 
more effectively externally with more intention. Yes, especially the more the more senior we are in our leadership roles, the more our mind tends to be occupied with future events, strategy, mm-hmm. future thinking, which removes us from what's actually happening in the present moment. Right. Like my present moment right now, I mean, the listeners can see me as I'm sitting at my writing desk in my office in Hollywood, Florida. I'm looking out at the swimming pool. I see the shrubs. That's reality in this moment. And I'm speaking to Sal via Zoom and we're seeing each other. That's right now. That's the reality of this moment. So the Mm -hmm. more deeply I can sink into that, the more rich our conversation will be. And the more potent the things that we discover will be. Mm. We have a lot of forces that that work against me just sitting here and noticing the shrubs by the pool because my mind is on so many other things. Yeah. Yeah. Regrets from the past or or plans for the future. And that takes us out of the Mm -hmm. moment. The research behind mindfulness is undisputed in terms of the benefits. Mm -hmm. What do you see? as the benefits of mindfulness? Like why, why should leaders aspire to have that daily routine, that daily intention that you mentioned? What's in it for them? Yeah, I want to draw one distinction because often we tend to confuse meditation and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So meditation is a, a practice, a wonderful practice that, that tends to calm and center us or if we're very agitated, it points out to us just how agitated we are and we notice. Right. right. A lot of research shows that if we meditate in the morning, we are more in tune with who we are, which then translates into us showing up in a much more self-aware during mm. the day and hopefully a calmer way. And by staying mindful of our reactions to situations, especially situations where we get triggered in some way or other, we tend to float through those with a lot less stress and a lot more ease. And that's obviously a clear benefit to the people we engage with, but also a benefit to ourselves where we minimize the levels of stress that we create. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's that personal benefit, the stress reduction, less emotional reactivity, which then has an impact on other people. And, And for senior and executive leaders that are listening where... They're facing an increasingly complex work environment. And part of that complexity comes from the fact that they often have to work with other senior leaders who have competing priorities with them. And so you can imagine that decreasing that emotional reactivity will allow them to stay in conversation more effectively Mm -hmm. and move a conversation forward. So to me, there's this very important deep personal aspect, but there's also better business outcomes as a result, or at least two relationships. I I totally agree with everything you said. This is related because I just did a a masterclass today and part of my preparation, I was rereading some research that Michael Porter did that was published Mm -hmm. in the Harvard Business Review in the August issue, July, August issue, on how CEOs in, in mega multi-billion dollar revenue companies manage their time. And it's related to, I think, mindfulness. So let me briefly Mm -hmm. share some of it. One thing, they work a lot. The average was 62.5 hours a week, which is a lot. They spend roughly 50% of the time in corporate headquarters, 50% of the time traveling. But the thing that 
to me was the silver lining here is that most of them realize that because they're responsible for so many things on any given day, they need to be available to things that are not planned. Stuff just comes in. So they know that they cannot overbook their days. In comparison to more middle-level managers, they schedule unscheduled time or they have flex time, time where they can be spontaneous to what happens, which is really powerful. Another conversations I've had with a bunch of CEOs that I support is the, the need to have a thinking time instead of constant blabber meeting time. Yeah. And the ones who do this really well, because thinking time also means mindfulness time. I check in with myself. I'm choosing to not engage with others and creating that time consciously. And it, it sadly means scheduling into your calendar it's really helpful. I support one female CEO of a, of a big manufacturing company, and she goes to her public library to get out of the office so nobody can find her. And we were kind of laughing because she hired a new chief operating officer who discovered that she would escape the library. And he said, oh, I'll meet you, I'll meet you at the library so we can chat there. And she wanted to scream. Right. <laughs> no, that's my point. space. This is my thinking time. This is where right. I check in with myself. Yeah. How many executives do we come across that? I just spoke to a coaching client yesterday and he's booked all day long and every meeting starts exactly when the last meeting ends. And at those senior leadership levels, that thinking time, that space becomes critically important. In terms of a mindful mindfulness practice, by the way, you wrote a wonderful book. Well, one of several that you've written and I was lucky enough to read that recently, called The Moment, A Practical Guide to Creating a Mindful Life in a Distracted World. I love the title, by the way. The subtitle is awesome. It's so true. The subtitle is the result of a very detailed negotiation with a publisher. But I'm I'm very happy with the subtitle. I agree with you. Nice. So you lay out four keys, if you will, to a practical, mindful life. The first one was awaken the senses. The second, crave meaning. The third, wave ride energy. And the fourth, make time stand still. What's that first one about? Awaken the senses. And part of what I'm, I'm looking at is what are some tips and, and advice that we can give some of our listeners on yeah. how to implement a more mindful lifestyle? Well, if, if you remember when you and I spent some time together at the Flow Retreat, we did some work with horses and a psychologist. Yeah, that was amazing. And so Giselle Fobel is a psychologist, and the whole message around the horses was get out of your head into your body, right? Get mm. out of your head into your body. Get out of your head into your body. And obviously, I greatly appreciate a great mind and a great thinking mind. So we're not negating that. But because I was also in my first career for many years, a professional acting coach and teacher in New York, what actors do, and I want to relate this to what we do with the horses is actors, our job is to almost in a heightened way, portray and live reality based on what the character warrants. So what actors do in acting class to more more fully be in touch with things, they heighten the experience of the senses because the senses Mm -hmm. are connected to our memory and our emotional experience of life. So if this sounds abstract to anybody who listens, because I live at the beach, for example, if I go to the ocean, 
I will see the ocean. I will notice the sun. I'll hear the roar of the ocean. But the moment I close my eyes, I get rid of some of the sensory stimulations and just focus on the sound. Suddenly, my experience of the sound is heightened. The sound was there all the time, but I am so distracted that I just marginally hear the sound. So for all of us, it behooves us to do like little exercises, um, to close the eyes for a minute or two and just listen and realize, why this is here all the time. I just didn't notice. And obviously, our ability to more acutely um, experience all the senses means I, I more acutely experience you because I more acutely receive the signals you're sending me. And that will lead to a, just a deeper experience we have with each other. Hmm. I was in a strategic planning session with a client just yesterday, and it's very easy. You mentioned this distinction between being in your head and, and getting in your body and, and having a Uh, maybe a more emotional experience of life. And so for most of the morning, this group was very much in their head and we were looking at mission and vision and unique market position. And all of a sudden, one of the leaders shared an experience of what it felt like this particular client is local government, municipality here in Colorado. And this leader described an experience of when residents of this community would thank people in the division that they work with. And he, he actually started crying in the middle of this description. And it was the most amazing moment because it showed everybody that if they can link that emotional experience to their strategic planning process, they're going to get out of their head and they're going to find something much more meaningful, way more deep than the logical only thinking. And as you mentioned, that thinking is important and valued, but there's this whole other side that leaders often miss and, and fail to tap into that well, and, is and, related and, to the, the emotions. And Madison Avenue knows this, so all, all marketing is, gear, is geared toward emotions and yeah. it's geared towards giving us what they think are highly desirable sensory images, which means you know the images, regardless of product, are usually families at a lake having a picnic celebrating life uh we get pleasant auditory cues it's lovely music it's not jarring music so everything is there to to seduce us sensorially because Mm. they know that yes we make decisions with our mind but deep down decisions are emotional we need to honor that and the senses which is what i appreciate about the story just here that the senses are our connection to emotion and Mm. they evoke it and they remember emotion. Mm. Yeah. So that's the first key is find a way to awaken the senses. The second is around uh, craving meaning. Tell us about that. I'm thinking of uh, on the deepest level. I also just recently facilitated a retreat for corporate client. And if we have a group of people and we, um, we perform a bunch of tasks together and, and we are successful. The kind of meaning that historically seems to matter to people, that's tribal meaning that goes back to ancient cultures that also goes to stuff that psychologists know, which is at the deepest level, we want to belong somewhere. Mm-hmm. We want yeah. to belong to, which is why right. the, word, the, the word tribe is rightfully so popular. We want to 
belong to a tribe, to a community. We want to feel safe. We don't just want that as an intellectual construct. We want to feel it. So we can have an all-day meeting and talk about all sorts of stuff, but the deeper meaning is that we are a group of people, a tribe, if you will, who are genuinely working towards something that we feel strongly about. And my job as a leader is to know that that's the deeper meaning, to allow for that to unfold and to have the Mm. courage to consciously articulate it. This stereotype, new CEOs who take over companies and and want to prove to their stakeholders that they know what they're doing, which usually first actually is cost-cutting, we're going to save money, we're going to have better quarterly results. That has no meaning for anybody except for the people on the street that you do your quarterly calls for. So you can get people to execute that, and you're killing meaning every single day with that. If you don't find a broader framework to understand the meaning for why people go to work. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned earlier in this conversation, when we kicked it off, there's an element of health and bringing humanity into work. And that sense of belonging is so core to what we need as human beings. We have to be able to tap into that as we're executing on our business plan as leaders. The one leader who's rightfully become an inspirational force in the world right now is Lucinda Ahern, you know, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who I'm paraphrasing now, basically said is economic growth just for the sake of economic growth without people thriving and prospering means nothing. Yeah. And she's she's creating a a government agenda which says our people's well-being comes first. That same thinking is required in businesses. And there are many examples of businesses that do it. The larger the enterprise gets, I know the harder it is to live that. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. There was uh, some recent news about Mark Benioff at Salesforce mm-hmm. and how he's, he's talking now about how our capitalist system is, it's not well, it's, it's broken in some ways. And that we have a greater responsibility as business leaders to not only do well for the business, but to do good. And I know that part of what Salesforce does is they, they donate 1% of profits, 1% of products, and 1% of their employees' time. But I think it's connected here. I mean, I just briefly interject because Salesforce yeah. has a huge intentional mindfulness culture. So mm-hmm. it's one of the companies where, where from the corporate level, by understanding that mindfulness matters, they have uh, people that teach it. It's lived. It's not just a platitude. Yeah. This is a great example. And I, I like that example because they're highly successful, business-oriented, results-oriented, and also mindful. And I think great businesses can do both. This isn't one or the other. It's not black or white. I think there is a way to create great business outcomes and also be mindful of our impact on people, on our community, on the greater world in which we live. There's two other elements in your book around sort of keys to creating a practical, mindful life. Wave, ride, energy, and make time stand still. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I, I know I wrote that. I'm so chuckling at my own, fanciful <laughs> use, my own fanciful use of language. I've had different experiences in my life where I started to have more 
deeper and richer experiences of what energy feels like. To keep it as simple as possible, my job is to energize myself so I have energy to give to other people. I was recently talking to a fellow who I, I like very much, and he was complaining about a team that that he doesn't respect much, that he works with. He says, I, I get no energy from them. And I said, well, your job yeah. is to give them energy. It's lovely if they just send it back to you, but if it's not coming, your job is to energize them. Mm. So we give energy, and ideally, the question of what comes first, but when I give energy, I'm much more likely to receive it back. But I, I can't receive it back if I don't even know what it feels like. Right. And there are many, many practices all over the world, more in Eastern traditions about around Reiki and yoga and meditation or the chakras, which are all about more deeply knowing energy, which means I can receive more energy. Mm. From. Mm-hmm. And then making time or make time stand still, I wonder if that's connected. It is, to me, the, the glue between these things is the thing we already talked about, which is the flow experience. Yeah. When, when I'm fully immersed in what I'm doing, like right now, you and I are talking, I'm really enjoying the conversation. I have no idea how long we've been talking. It's your job to monitor it. I don't have to. <laughs> so, right. but, uh, flow. But, but we've all been in, in what I want to call sucky conversations where we're looking at the clock and we go, I can't wait for it to be over. But in flow, I say time stands still, but what I'm really saying is our, our notion of time becomes meaningless because we're yeah. so involved in the moment. And that's powerful. Wow. Imagine creating that environment at work. Yeah. And what could become possible for people. Yeah. So this whole idea of mindfulness, I mean, as I think about myself, this is an area that I'm, I'm really trying to develop around and, and build a more intentional mindfulness practice in my life, both in the mornings and throughout the day. I really invite listeners and, and leaders all over to think about how they can bring mindfulness into their practice for their own self-awareness and development and also to, to help support the people who are impacted by their leadership behaviors. So as we maybe shift a bit from mindfulness into masterminding, because as, as we think about getting ready and, and, and sort of getting aligned around this new year, it's also helpful to be surrounded by people who can support us. And the definition or the word mastermind was coined by Napoleon Hill. Yes. Early 20s or mid 20s. And his, he had a couple of books where he coined that The Law of Success and Think and Grow Rich. Tell us what a mastermind is from your mm. point of view. In one moment, I, because you mentioned Napoleon Hill, mm. because, and he was completely in my mind, not a mystical dude in any kind of way. But when he talked about the benefit of a mastermind, which is really a group of people who are exceptional coming together challenging each other, uplifting each other, yeah. helping each other bring out the best in what they do. And he said the mastermind is like the third eye, which is, for listeners who know the chakra, that's the eye in the forehead, which in Indian mythology is created to wisdom. This is the source of wisdom energy. Mm-hmm. And he says is when we are in a mastermind with exceptional people, the collective third eye is always bigger than our own and our source of wisdom and our understanding invariably expands. Yeah. And in my own life, 
I've been in multiple masterminds at key stages in my life, which always accelerated exactly what I needed to do at that stage of my life. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. A, it's a cliche to say they were transformational, but they were transformational. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So how, how can leaders bring this concept into their world to help them become more effective both in the professional world as, as well as personally? Well, there are two ways to, to look at masterminds. I'll give you an example from my own world. I, I'm a pretty well-known global executive coach, but I hang out in a, in a group with four other really world-renowned coaches, and we talk once a month for two and a half hours. So I'm, I'm surrounded with my peers who are exceptional, and both in awareness, I've learned incredible things, but also in terms of tangible benefits. If I need advice on something, I get the advice. I've, I have gotten new clients because of advice I got in this group. So mm-hmm. these are true experts in my field. So this is one thing. So for anybody who listens, whichever way you define yourself as a leader, really exceptional group of people for you to hang out with and speak with regularly who are willing to both challenge you, hold you accountable, mm. and, and, and lift you up in their feedback. Now, within your company, masterminds can be amazing for bringing together people from different business units. If you're very siloed, where right. you have, think of it, it's a think tank where people are free to bring in questions and challenges, but they don't get the same usual platitudes. You don't get a process answer. You're allowed to really, really challenge the status quo in these conversations with people who can make a difference. Yeah. So that's how it can work in-house. Mm-hmm. I think about my experience in the mastermind with the group that you led for the listeners on the show, it was a, a group of six of us, six executives from, diff, from six different companies. And I was a participant. I was one of the executives involved in this mastermind, and Akeem was our coach. It was an incredible experience. It was a six-month process that we went through. We met three hours once a month. We had uh, check-ins with you throughout the month. We had check-ins with each other as accountability buddies. And it was interesting because I always would come into those conversations with an agenda for myself and walk away with learnings that I would have never expected. And sometimes it was when I was in the hot seat. And in many cases, it was when one of the other executives was in the hot seat. It was a very powerful experience. Because I've been in multiple masterminds, the, the thing I love most is exactly what you said. I, I come in and I, and I, I know this is what I want to talk about. And I usually leave with insight and wisdom around something that I didn't even know I had to learn. Right. <laughs> but, but, right. but because other people's consciousness was there and I go, shoot, that's exactly what I need to figure out for myself. Yeah. So yeah. it's powerful. Yeah. So for everyone who's listening, I mean, think about this concept. We, we, we really touched on our individual consciousness with the idea of a mindfulness practice. And then the collective consciousness with this idea of a mastermind. So as we're starting off the new year and, and, and aligning ourselves, as we're aligning the organization, really think about how you can bring those practices into, into your life. I'm going back to the Michael Porter research I was just reading. Yeah. It's a cliche, but the cliche is that it's lonely at the top. Mm-hmm. And it is lonely at the top. 
Michael Porter found that 50% of the CEOs speak with say that they feel lonely in their roles. Loneliness is being recognized as a serious worldwide epidemic. I have lots of research that I don't have time to get into, but my presence in a mastermind with other exceptional people, it gets me that meaning that we talked about earlier. It gives me that experience and I don't feel alone when I'm in a mastermind. Mm. It's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I think back to the earliest conversations we had in our mastermind and got executives from these really sexy companies, as, as you would say. And on the outset, it, it can be intimidating. But as you start to get into these conversations, it becomes less and less intimidating as you see the humanity in each of yeah. the people, as they become vulnerable. And that loneliness factor starts to go away. Agreed. Yeah. Akeem, great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for for joining us. I know that our listeners are going to get a ton of value from our time together. It was entirely my pleasure. Thank you, Sal. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out. I'm out.